Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Karen Campbell, the Phil Wilson Curator of Contemporary Art at Joslin Art Museum. In today's show, Karen shares her first memorable encounters with art, her role as a curator in catalyzing public conversation, and the emotional impact of art in and on her life. Karen Campbell is the Phil Wilson Curator of Contemporary Art at Joslin Art Museum. Since joining the museum in 2012, Campbell has curated several major exhibitions, including 30 Americans, Wordplay, Prints, Photographs and Paintings by Ed Rouché, and Sheila Hicks, Material Voices. She oversees Joslin's collection of contemporary art and is the principal curator for the Karen and Doug Riley Contemporary Artist Project Gallery, the first space in the museum's history dedicated specifically to living artists. Karen Campbell, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for having me. My first question, just to set the stage, is to invite you, what stands out from your childhood? You know, what was your childhood like? I had a very comfortable, very loving childhood. My parents were a little bit older when they had me. I have a brother who's 10 years older than I am. And sadly, my mom miscarried in between my brother and me, and it took a little while for baby number two to come. You know, my parents were established in their careers, and they had done the whole raising kid thing um, already, kind of fully by the time I had come in some ways. Um, And so, you know, my brother and I were and are extremely close. As a result, we were never sort of competing during the same stages of life. He was in some ways like a parent figure, in some ways like a best friend, um, mentor, you know. So I I was really lucky and continue to be lucky to have him as a figure in my life. Uh, But I I basically was an only child in many ways. You know, when I was doing soccer games as a little kid, it was like, you know, my parents didn't have to rush off to then a softball game and then a swimming meet and, you know, whatever else kids do. I was also raised in a household that... um, taught me to stand up for myself, to be an individual, to not kind of follow the crowd. You know, my parents were, my my mother was raised fairly wealthy. My father was not. uh, And they kind of came together in the middle to ground me in many ways. You know, there was never an obsession with material culture. Vacations were, especially once my brother went to college, pretty few and far between. And I don't say that as a complaint, but rather out of respect for the fact that my parents uh, valued education so much that that's where their priorities lay at the time and continue to. It was it was sort of idyllic in many ways. You know, I had loving family around all the time and really great openness at home. I got the sex talk at like age six, you know, like there's this, there was just sort of this this um, open lines of communication. And I, I feel very lucky. I, I don't think I've ever talked about my childhood like this. So it's sort of these things are kind of washing over me. You mentioned being raised to think for yourself and to be independent and not to follow trends, just to be your own person. And for me, that, that already starts to evoke a little bit about what art does. Are there any moments or memories you have when you realize that 
art or aesthetics or the organization of aesthetic you know, experiences was something that appealed to you? Yeah, actually, there are two formative moments that happened in very different stages of my childhood. Uh, the first was I was probably nine or ten. Uh, and the Andy Warhol Museum had opened in Pittsburgh. I'm from Pittsburgh originally, was born and raised there. My parents still live there. And I, I don't know if it opened in the summer, but I visited in the summer with a friend of mine who I went to camp with and my older brother, who I've already mentioned. Um, he was like, OK, well, I'm, I'm going to take you all to this new museum this, that opened, the Andy Warhol Museum. And, I, you know, no, no knowledge of Andy Warhol. I, I knew the name because I was from Pittsburgh, but beyond that, couldn't tell you anything about it. <laughs> And I remember getting off of the elevator uh, in one of the gallery spaces. And the first thing I saw was an enormous painting of a nude male form with genitalia that was probably as big as my body. That's how big the painting was. And it was just sort of right there. And the imagery that then filled the spaces. And, and I, you know, I was too young to fully grasp it, but I also like understood that something was happening here, right? That this wasn't just in service of being provocative or pornographic. In some cases it was. Um, but then you got to a whole room where he ha- Warhol had urinated on his paintings, creating these incredible oxidation um, compositions that just I, I just didn't have words for. Sometimes I don't have words for still. We also ran into the priest from my church. I was I, I attended church as a, a child Catholic church, uh, and there was something very um, destabilizing about seeing Father Walt with his page boy haircut. Uh, I was used to seeing him in his you know traditional Catholic priest garb, uh, but here he was in umbros and a t-shirt, looking at the same paintings that I was looking at, and that that really kind of pried something open inside my brain. Father Walt and I had words later in my life when I started to use my voice a little more per my my previous comments about standing up for myself and saying what I believe in. Um, so that was one formative moment. Uh, the other was when I was a sophomore in high school, I was taking AP Modern European History and the teacher, Miss Mactay, who was about four feet tall in my memory. <laughs> I mean, she was definitely very short with just this mess of wild curly hair. She was just a real character. She used to show us art regularly, at least once a week. She would put up a slide because we were still using slide projectors back then and would say, OK, you know, what do you see here? There was no there was no prompting. We we were sort of it was un- with the understanding that this artwork was made during the time period we were discussing at, at the moment in class. But there was no context beyond that. And I learned during those experiences that I had a real voice for speaking about art in a way that I had not identified before. You know, I was still what, 15 years old. Uh, And the final project for that class was to write a history of Europe using paintings in Carnegie Museum of Art's permanent collection. Um, So we were sort of set free in the museum. We were old enough at that point to be able to do it. Picked a theme. I talked about the gap between the rich and the poor and how that had driven. um, It's crazy that I remember that. um, That that really had driven history forward. And I, you know, supported that thesis with artworks as, as intended. And I kind of got done with my project relatively quickly, prepared to write the paper, and I had free time. And this just so happened to be at the same time as the 1999-2000 Carnegie International, uh, which is next to the Venice Biennale, the oldest survey of contemporary art in the world. They actually both took place in 1896 for the first time, although Venice was a few months earlier. So they get to lay claim to being the oldest. And I my, I, I was bowled over. I didn't understand anything that I was looking at. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. I'd never seen materials used in that way. I'd never seen bodies deployed in that way. Um, the installation of it was 
captivating. And I went home and I was like, hey, guys, um, I did some research to my parents and I'm going to be a curator. And they sort of patted me on the head like, OK, honey, live your dreams. You know, are you sure you don't want to be a doctor? Uh, but OK, sure, fine. And it was that that moment I was you know, 15 years old deciding that that was going to be my life work. It feels as if there, there is this um, awakening, as it were, to the, the potency of art, presenting art, but also in the bigger context of the world. And you mentioned that. Uh, the gap between rich and poor was part of your study at school. And when you went to uh, the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, to do your degree, your degree was in art history and political science. So I know you went on after that to develop academic skills specifically around curatorial practice. But what was it about art history and political science that made those the fields? And, and how do they relate to each other? There is the um, the kind of poetic answer to that question. And then there's a real practical answer. <laughs> um, I think as, as often the case when you are 19 and trying to figure out what your life is. Um, you know, I went in intending to be an art history major. That's what I declared freshman year. I knew it. We didn't have to declare, I think, until the end of sophomore year. And I'd gotten to a point where I realized I had taken enough poli-sci classes to also major. Um, so that was sort of one thing. There was, a, there was a practical issue of like, okay, well, I'm, I'm most of the way there. Let's just make this official. I will say, you know, going uh, again back to my childhood, um, my brother also attended College of the Holy Cross. He was also a political science major. And we used to have conversations around the dinner table from when I was very young about current events, politics. My father, God bless him, was a registered Republican until he was 70. Um, he is no longer. Uh, but we but there were definitely like he brought some life experiences with him, um, especially being raised in a lower socioeconomic uh, status and with conservative Catholic parents. And so, you know, that we had the really in-depth conversations sparked in, in large part by the fact that my brother was studying politics. My parents were interested in politics, if not politically engaged. So I had this sort of groundwork from a young age of being interested in um, not just the ideas of politics, but the mechanisms of politics and and how governments work uh, and don't work, as we often see. And then realizing how things like current events and political issues and art are in many ways inseparable, particularly contemporary art. Contemporary art is meant to reflect the current moment. For me, the best contemporary art has a sense of urgency attached to it, especially in times of national crisis. And this has really, really been on my mind the last couple of weeks, especially this week with um, the massacre at Robb Elementary in Texas that, um, you know, on one hand, that is a political issue because we can dive into Second Amendment rights and, you know, the ineptitude of our government to, to do anything in the wake of these crises. But then there's also the response to that from the cultural standpoint. So this week, I, I keep going back to this is a much more in-depth answer than you were probably bargaining for. But the artist Hank Willis Thomas um, designed a really incredible living memorial called um, the Gun Violence Memorial. Um, I believe it was originally to be installed at the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C., a Smithsonian institution in 2020. But as with most things that should have happened in 2020, it didn't. And it is now currently on view, I believe, until September of this year. Um, and it's a, a, a large scale installation of um, four kind of archetypal houses. Like if you were to sketch a house as a child, very rectilinear, peaked roof, 
um, each of which is made of 700 glass bricks, um, 700 representing the number of um, gun violence deaths I believe each month in the United States. Um, I should back up and say that Hank's cousin was a victim of gun violence. Um, so this has sort of been part of his worldview for a long time. Um, and I say it's a living memorial because in each of those glass blocks, um, over time, they are gathering materials that belonged to victims of gun violence, um, a T-shirt, a trinket, a toy, things like that. So, so that we're not just counting people, but we're remembering who these people were. So, you know, while I may not have been able to articulate those ideas very clearly when I was 19 years old, um, I, I felt the connection and the, the necessity of that connection pretty acutely. I feel like there's a really powerful arc to what we might think of objectively as curatorial practice, but I think we can breathe life into that by talking to you about your own journey as a curator and some of the shows that you have curated the exhibitions and, and other, uh, you know, experiences. So I, I'm going to begin by asking you perhaps not what is your role as a curator, but perhaps what was your role as a curator? And you shared words with me like connoisseurship and another word that maybe pops into my mind from perhaps, you know, if I channel a skeptical public that is you know, leery of art because it's challenging, you know, I might talk about you as gatekeepers of culture. Dare I even use the word elite? So I'm curious about what was the role of the curator in your view and perhaps how you started. I don't know how you started your career and then, then we can journey with you. So I think you pulled out the right words. Um, this is a field that is accused of elitism fairly, you know, and has been for generations. Because especially, you know, uh, if we go back to some of the, the, I'll call them the great curators of the 20th century, first of all, it's a lot of white men. Um, you know, the field of art history is filled with white men. The field of curatorship is filled with white men. And so, and you know, this is something we're seeing change, not just by necessity, but because, um, you know, the there are people who are really kind of breaking down walls. But I, I think that that, that chart, that, that accusation of elitism and and, and the sort of connoisseurship comes with a bit of a sneer, I would say, comes to the fact that there is this, especially with contemporary art, this idea that it is necessarily stilting, that it's impenetrable, that the concepts aren't as familiar, that the imagery isn't as familiar, uh, that the ideas are more opaque, which is interesting because, as I've just said, contemporary art is of the moment. These are artists who are responding to exactly the moment we are all living in. Whether or not you have a direct relationship to those experiences, what you know, to my previous example, whether or not you've been directly touched by gun violence, um, it still informs the way the world is moving around us. So, uh, gatekeepers is another word that is interesting. It sticks out to me because, it, and and maybe maybe I might shift that to say, taste makers or taste establishers. <laughs> Because there is, there's certainly an element of okay, I've I've spent a lot of time studying this, I spend a lot of time looking at art, looking, looking, looking is so important, and I don't. Sometimes I think we don't talk enough about it, but I think it's fair to say that I I probably look at more art than most of my friends who don't work in the art field. You know, in the same way that my friends in the medical field look at far more X-rays than I do, right? Um, so, so you know, I, I have I have this sort of um, 
trained eye for looking. And I, I talked about how I found my voice with it. But looking is also a skill in the way that baking or any other thing that that the more you do it, the better you become at it. Um, you also have develop an ability to filter out the stuff that's not useful or not interesting. You know, and it's it's all subjective. Art is always subjective. I can look at something and love it and you can look at it and be like, Bleh, no, thank you. But if we can talk about those things, and this is back to the idea of art being stilting, then we've had a conversation about art. And that's that's when when I, I've talked about my role a lot as massaging the public. Uh, before me, there had not been a contemporary curator at Jocelyn for eight years. I've now been there for a decade as of next week. Um, but you have to get people comfortable coming to the table with their own perspectives and ideas and feeling like they can view art through those unique experiences and perspectives. So that's where kind of massaging the public comes from. Now, I've talked about this kind of shifting role. You know, so I, I started in my career um, kind of like knowing that I wanted to be a curator, but still not really knowing what that meant. And in fact, when I was in graduate school, so my graduate program was the Center for Curatorial Studies at Bard College um, in upstate New York. And I had the director of my program my first year approach uh, one of our graduate committee members who I'd known for a long time because I, I went, I was at Carnegie Museum of Art. Um, I should say that that's the end of my experience with Carnegie is that I ended up working on the 2008 Carnegie International. So I had this sort of full circle experience with that exhibition. Uh, she was an advisor on the show that, that this um, particular graduate committee member. And she approached me one day and said, the director of your program sent me an email saying she doesn't think you actually want to be a curator. And I was like, that's interesting. She's never said that to me. Maybe this is a conversation that we should have had before she went telling other people, particularly colleagues who I respect. And I said, no, I, I'm pretty sure that's not true. You know, I know I'm still young, but I, I, I have a pretty clear idea about wanting to be a curator. I just don't know what that looks like yet. Um, and I happen to be speaking to exactly the right person because um, her name is Unji Ju. She's at the um, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art now. And she has crafted a curatorial practice that is very much hybrid. Uh, and she picked up on something that had kind of been bothering me and was actually integral to my thesis research, which is art doesn't exist in a vacuum. Art exists only with publics around it. Um, I had a mentor at Carnegie Museum of Art. Her name was Lucy Stewart. Um, she was an educator. I should say I, I got my start museum work in education. My very first internship was an education internship. And she said to me, and I will never forget this, she said it once and then she said it many times. So it was clearly this sort of, um, um, you know, uh, value she was kind of holding up in her work as an educator is that a museum without people is an archive. And so I knew I always wanted to have a role in bringing art and audiences together. But how do you do that within the confines of curatorship, um, which, as we've talk just talked about, was associated with a lot of things that meant just objects, you know, 20 or 15 years ago in the museum world, you would have talked about the object sphere and the people sphere. And there it's a Venn diagram, but sometimes it's just two circles next to each other. And, and that's not interesting to me. So in my conversations, fast forwarding again to, to graduate school with Anji Ju, her talking about this hybrid practice of being aware of audiences, of understanding that our audiences come to the table to complete 
art. Um, that art sitting on a wall by itself is just a thing, but with the world around it becomes something else entirely and is sort of brought to life and is brought to life many times with each person who looks at it and engages it and thinks about it. You know, that the, the idea of being a curator and wanting to also deal with audiences was is something newer. Um, and I think that there's great power and potential in that. I find it fascinating to think about the relational context of your role and whether that's in terms of people or items or social context, whatever that happens to be. I especially like you talking about the skill of looking at something. So it feels to me as if there are probably a number of ways that you would describe this relationship specifically between the curator and publics. Part of your role could be described as helping the public to look, to, to develop that skill for themselves. Um, also, it could be framed as one of love, uh, one of possibly provocation, one of truth-telling, one of um, candor, uh, tough love. I'm not sure. I mean, there are so many ways to describe this. So I'm wondering if you might describe how you do now see that relationship between yourself as a curator and the publics. Yeah. Um, my work does not exist without publics um, because especially when you're in a public institution um, like Jocelyn Art Museum is, and, and, and frankly, I'm only interested in museum work and have been for a long time. I had a lot of colleagues in grad school who were sort of waving the independent curatorial flag, bouncing from place to place, maybe working in a Kunstala model, which is a non-collecting institution. Um, I've always been just compelled by the idea of a collection and of people coming to it, especially over time. So what a permanent collection provides is this opportunity to look forward and backward at the same time and, and, and considering the present moment. And so that's very exciting to me. And you can't do that sitting alone in an office. There have to be other perspectives brought to the table by your colleagues, certainly, but also by the people who walk into the building every single day. I feel a great responsibility to our audiences and it's it's um you have to toe a line because, you know, I I want people to feel comfortable engaging in art. Um, I want them to come to the table with their own set of experiences. But there's all but I I do also represent the artists and their voices. Um, there is also a little of nudging sometimes that happens in a certain direction. Or okay, I hear you saying that, but consider looking at it through this through this lens. And that's harder to do when your primary way of communicating with publics is through things like didactics, chat labels, wall labels, et cetera. So I, I, when I say responsibility, um, not only is it an open door to bring their perspectives with them, but it's also responsibility to kind of guide them toward what the artist is thinking about. Because, you know, great art makes us see the world in a different way. It kind of sheds light on things that we may not know or may think we know, but don't really understand things that make us very uncomfortable, things that we hold inside that don't know how to articulate ourselves. But then maybe we see it reflected back in the work in a great work of art. And when I talk about responsibility, it's responsibility to all different kinds of publics. Um, there's not one kind of person that walks into a museum you know, not one race, not one gender, not one age, not one skill level, not one level of education. So how do you, and this is a question I've been holding very close in the last two years, especially, how do you ensure that 
anyone who walks in the door feels as though number one, they are welcome. And number two, that their, their lives and experiences are being reflected back at them. There's immense power in that. I'm so glad that you landed at the end there on that responsibility that you have. I don't know how much of a burden that feels. Um, I, I mean, I hesitate to call it a burden because I'm also in a position of great privilege. Um, I am a white woman in America, and that comes with a whole set of privileges that I would be disingenuous to not acknowledge. Um, so I, you know, a, a good example in 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 planning 30 Americans from the Rubel family collection, um, I was looking at a lot of heavy imagery and thinking about a lot of heavy topics all day, every day for months and months and months on end. And then at five or five thirty or whatever p.m., I turned off my desk light, closed my computer and walked away from it. Um, sometimes carrying those ideas with me, but merely making a concerted effort to to disconnect in a way um and there are millions of people in this country who do not have that privilege i think that especially with uh, in the wake of george floyd's murder and so many institutions having reckonings about what they are what they should be and what they can be um i think that is more of perhaps where the burden resided that um you know, you know, museums especially tend to be big kind of slow moving beasts um, sort of by necessity. There are, you know, there are protocols to follow and we our you know, number one mission is to preserve and protect art um, for, you know, so that it exists in perpetuity and feeling a little bit like your hands are tied to to respond very urgently to something. Uh, I'm proud of the work that we did that we've been doing now for for more than a decade, but as much as at the time we were only three curators, uh, as much as we could do, we pushed for uh, and we continue to push for. And with Jocelyn Art Museum closed right now for two years, we have the luxury of a kind of extended period of thinking about how do we continue to build on the work we've done and how do we hold that question of what do we do next very close and let it inform every decision we make. I'm thinking about the influence that perhaps you have felt in your life as a curator on publics in shaping this, um, maybe before you might have thought about it as tastemaking, as you described, an older way of looking at things, but perhaps now presenting the experiences that we're facing as a society back through the medium of art. And so one of the exhibitions that um, you, you curated at Joslin was 30 Americans, and I would imagine that just because of the timing of the way the art world works, that was probably in train before the summer of 2020 and therefore before the murder of George Floyd and the protests around race inequity at that time. And so I'm, I'm curious about how you adapted your thinking to that exhibition, given those circumstances. And then if there is anything in that exhibition that you felt really did 
convey the potency of your work as a curator? Yeah, 30 Americans was a really important moment um, in, in my personal work as a curator, but also for the institution, certainly. Um, so it comes from the Rubel family collection in Miami. It is a show that has been traveling in some capacity as of 2019 for something like 10 or 11 years. And unlike a, what we call a package show, which is something that comes to you with all the didactics and a prescribed installation and, you know, everything you could want and need. And then it just sort of appears in your space with a little bit of, you know, exhibition planning. Um, for this show, you are handed essentially a stack of 400 images because that's they have about 400 to 450 objects in their collection made by artists who are black uh, and are told, you know, your audiences, you know, know your spaces, you know, what kind of stories you want to weave. We trust you as a curator. Do whatever you want with this, essentially. Um, oh, and by the way, we'll pay for shipping, <laughs> you know, so it's a it's a show that um, that if I had tried to organize it independently, it would have it would sink most museums exhibition budgets for the year. Um, so it's a really incredible opportunity and and comes comes to various museums with great generosity from the collection. Um, so this was an overdue project for for Jocelyn. We had never done a whole exhibition dedicated specifically to artists who are black, exclusively to artists who are black. Actually, the original iteration at the Rubel family was 31 artists. They, they added an artist to have the original title, but I, I did have 30 based on um, one artist whose work we were unable to show. And it, it felt like a moment to not abandon everything else we were doing, but we really gave over a lot of space in the museum to it. Um, we wanted to give it the space it deserved to breathe. There were a lot of large objects. Um, the nature of our galleries allowed us to show some things that couldn't be shown at other museums or were not, maybe not shown with as much um, grace and, and, as I said, space as we were able to allow. So... That that exhibition allowed us to kind of build on this idea of elevating and amplifying perspectives that had been previously underrepresented, not just at Jocelyn, but in the art world writ large. And this is something I sort of really made a case for when I first started at Jocelyn. Um, I remember the first time I walked in the doors of that building and I was like, this is an incredible building. This is a great collection. It's a it's a little quirky. Um, we cannot write a complete history of art from 1945 to present. Um, a lot of museums can't, but we have these incredible gems and these, these sort of other narratives that you can tease out. However, it, it was very male and very white. And I remember one of the first conversations I had with our director was we need to do a little work on changing that. You know, maybe the first step was opening the Riley Contemporary Artist Project Gallery, um, where we showed for the first show was a, an artist who was a black woman. And that felt like, if not, you know, standing at the mountaintop screaming kind of statement, at least a like, we're doing something here, you know? Um, and so 30 Americans was this, this big opportunity to, um, to really do some of the hard work. Um, so we deinstalled two permanent collection galleries. I brought in a lot of work. Um, I established a committee after I had already developed the checklist. Um, I, I wanted to maintain a little bit of curatorial voice and and the the ability to build a narrative. Um, but then we brought in people from across Omaha civic life, uh, education, law enforcement, uh, the arts, of course, um, nonprofit work. Um, we wanted to build a coalition of voices to help us better understand what it was we were trying to do. Um, we had programming that was developed by this committee. We had uh, interpretation developed by the committee. And, and 
they participated in these things as well. And that it was just an opportunity to show how very committed we had been and want to continue to be. We keep talking about it being one spoke and a many spoked wheel. You know, this is this is not work that stops. This is work that is ongoing by necessity. Um, and then in that show, I would say there were a couple of moments that really were important to me in terms of my my perspective and my curatorial voice and wanting to kind of bring art and public together. One was Kara Walker. Uh, we have about, uh, we're lucky to have about a 60, 62 foot wall, um, that divides two galleries. It's, it, which is a very big wall. You don't get that many long runs of walls and galleries and museums and her, uh, installation. It's an early tableau, uh, applied directly to the wall, cut black paper that we <laughs> spent about two weeks pasting to the wall. That's this really sort of epic narrative, um, and it makes you question how you view art and people and um, maybe the internal biases that you have that don't come out on a daily basis. And it's immersive. Uh, and I, I had to I, tr- I tried not to pat myself in the back too much during that show, but I did have a moment where the collector told me it was the best she'd ever seen it installed. Um, because we really gave it the space and the real estate that it deserved. So that was an important uh, moment. And then the Gary Simmons installation, Duck Duck News. Um, So as as a recap, that it was a circle of stools um, like you might find in an elementary school classroom, um, sort of child-sized stools, uh, each of which which had a a small um, Ku Klux Klan uh, hood on it. And in the middle of the circle dangling down was an empty noose, Um, really jarring, awful imagery. And the, the, the message from the artist was, look, uh, white supremacy and, and racism and hatred is not an inborn quality. It is a learned, uh, a learned thing. They are learned things. We are taught to hate. We are taught to be fearful and disdainful of the other. We are taught to kill the other. We don't just come out of the womb knowing that. Um, and it was, and, and and we were prepared for some backlash. We were prepared for everything from consternation to outrage. Uh, and we we got all of those responses. But do you shy away from showing something like that just because people are going to respond strongly to it? And the answer we arrived at with, especially with the help of this committee I was talking about was, no, you do not shy away from it. That those are conversations that we have to have, especially in a city that has been defined by its history of racism that has been defined by particularly one incident, the murder of Will Brown in 1919, right? That has, it shaped what this city has looked like for a generation. This is a place where we cannot avoid and should not avoid those conversations. So a while ago, I chatted with the local artist, Barber, and Mm -hmm. he shared with me um, this quote from James Baldwin that I'd not heard before. The purpose of art is to lay bare questions hidden by answers. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me as if part of what you're describing here is that this exhibition and, and your curatorial work catalyzed a conversation across the community. Yeah. And that, that's a great quote. I just want to back up to say, um, I, I always think that the best art leaves us with more questions than with the answers. Um, if, you, if you go into an experience particularly with something more challenging like that, expecting to walk away feeling sated or um, or reassured, you probably should be looking elsewhere. Um, yeah, it, it did catalyze conversations. And, uh, you know, 
we know that history repeats itself. Um, we're seeing that a lot recently. Um, and I'm not saying that art has the power to stop that necessarily, but art does have the power to continually remind us that uh, the conversations cannot end. And, and I, I do tend to think of art as being a sort of safe space for the most difficult conversations to play out. Which then makes me want to ask you, what are the kinds of conversations that have been provoked for you as, a, as an individual, as, as you've changed and grown over the years that you've been doing this work? How has this work and how has art changed who you are? I've had so many different kinds of experiences with art personally. Uh, you know, I talked about one of my early ex or earliest experiences with Andy Warhol. But I want to talk about some more recent experiences, maybe. Uh, because so I, I've now been a curator for, let's call it 15 years for argument's sake, in some capacity, um, full time at, at, in, in Omaha here for 10 years, but doing work before that. Um, and I, for some reason, thought that at some point I would stop having heart stopping moments with art. I don't know. I, th I don't know if I thought I would become um, immune to those kinds of deeper level experiences. Um, I haven't. I'm thrilled to say. And, the, and art has dredged up great emotions for me in recent years. Um, everything from, let's see, this was probably 2018, maybe. Um, my mother has late stage cancer and... Um, We'd gotten, I was on a business trip to Los Angeles um, and we'd gotten some very bad news about how the cancer had metastasized. She's doing okay right now, I'm pleased to say, but uh, this was the early stages and we were learning a lot of things uh, and we learned that it was much worse than we initially thought it was. Um, so I was, I happened to be at the Broad um, sitting in their courtyard or, or just next to it when I got this information. She called me. Uh, I had more museums to visit for the day. But I decided that my next stop had to be just across the street from the Broad, which is um, Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art, where they have, and I knew this, a room full of Mark Rothko paintings. Um, for, a, for a person who uh, my expertise is contemporary, nothing will put me, will force me onto my knees like a room full of Mark Rothko. Um, I have a religious experience with it. And I went and I blessedly was, the room was empty. It was just me for some reason. And I sat on a bench in that room for at least an hour just letting the paintings consume me. Um, and I cried, uh, like, like not going in intending to feel emotional, but knowing that it would have it, what I thought was going to be catharsis and ended up ripping open a gaping hole in my heart, uh, which was not anticipated. Um, but just to be surrounded by the immense quiet of something like a Marth Mark Rothko painting, in this case, like 10 of them, was really moving. Um, and I, I don't know, it, the, that sort of quiet power of art is something that in a landscape right now, where I've been talking about kind of lots of, let's call it loud art, um, something like clan hoods and a noose, I would, I would call loud art in comparison, which has its whole other set of experiences associated with it. Um, and then somewhere in the middle was an experience I had at the Museum of Modern Art a couple of years ago during um, an Adrian Piper exhibition. Uh, it was a survey, a phenomenal survey. One of the best shows I've seen at MoMA in a while. And MoMA's got a checkered history of, of exhibition making. Great moments and the disappointing moments. This one was a great one. 
So it was a full career survey, started with her earliest drawings when she was like 17 years old, and then went through all of this conceptual stuff and then into her performance work. Um, and she's now, in her, I believe, in her 70s. And it ended with a more recent work where I, I don't remember what year this was or if you remember this, but a number of years ago, there was a story in the news about a young disabled black person who had been kidnapped by a group of white uh, young white people and was held. This is sorry. This is dark um, trigger warning here. Held in a, a basement, captive and tortured. And there had been, finally been a new story about it. The people had confessed. Um, the woman they had captured had been released. And this was Adrian's response to it. So on a, a standalone wall in the middle of the gallery, she had silk screened um, kind of excerpts from the newspaper article. And then it's her sitting alone in her studio right in front of the camera, no one else around her, no noise, just complete silence. And her weeping and saying over and over again, uh, I'm going to forget what the exact phrase was, but something like, I'm going to be okay. I'm all right. Something like that. Just over and over and over again and intermittently weeping, standing up occasionally to walk and get a tissue or just like take a breather. But this goes on for an hour or more. And... I have so infrequently had something drill into my brain in the way that that did. Oh, and the, uh, sorry, I'm forgetting a key piece of the puzzle. There's a mirror. So you're looking at yourself while you're looking at Adrian and thinking about this story. Um, just incredible. Two women came into the gallery <laughs> while I was having this experience and started taking selfies in the mirror. And I'm not prone to violence, but when I tell you that this is the closest, I'm maybe not throwing a punch because I don't think I could ever actually punch someone, but like a good flick in the ear felt like a really appropriate response in that moment. Um, like read the room and also look at the object in front of you. And then they carried on and I forgot about them, but um, it was incredible. And then you exit the gallery and there is, um, she did a, a replay of a performance she'd done earlier in her career where she's um, wearing headphones and dancing to the music that we can't hear, but you just see her sort of um, the camera's far away and she's dancing in the middle of the street. And she redid that performance in the wake of making the piece that I had been looking at. Um, so this real juxtaposition of, um, of the kind of her lowest moment and then black joy and those, the way that the power of those two coming together I've had so many art experiences like that that change me, that change the way that I want to be a curator, that change this kind of stories I want to tell and how I want to tell them. And um, and I talked about privilege before. Getting to choose those stories and getting to have a platform is an incredible privilege. It's arresting the experience you had with the Rothkos because in some ways you're talking about just user work consumed. You're giving up what in... 2022 feels like an unbelievable amount of time, like a whole hour sitting, looking at art. I mean, that's, to some people listening, that might feel like a form of torture. And of course, it, it, it isn't. I think you just have to find your way to that space. But then you end with um, another art experience that is creating such an emotional, visceral reaction for you that the indifference, the cheapening of that experience for you by other people for whom the use of a mirror is purely for selfie taking this vanity of the area so you know the brevity of our experience in life and the vanity of our experience in modern days that's making me just want to ask you as you talk about how these experiences are making you think about 
what you want to do with your work, do you think about engaging those publics in a way where you can kind of shake them and say, no, spend an hour. No, this isn't for selfie territory. This is for um, deep inner looking, not outer, you know, posing. The short answer is yes. Um, (laughs) The longer answer is we go into this work knowing that we cannot control other people's actions or behaviors or responses. Um, so to, to kind of talk about some devices that I, I, I'd like to try and use, and this is not just me, this is, these are curatorial devices, um, across the field with duck, duck noose. I put it in a space that you had to navigate around. You could not walk past it. Um, I probably put it in a smaller space than it should have been in, but I wanted to force people whose instinct would be to avoid it. And this became an issue because there were some people who wanted to avoid it. So we ended up adding some language about a week after the show opened that, look, this is uh, a very difficult room you're about to enter. Um, This is a preview of what you're going to be experiencing. We welcome you to find another way. Um, But I was, I was also concerned with the people who would just either walk past it because they didn't have the patience for it or walk past it because they wanted to avoid it. And this was unavoidable. Um, you know, I, this, it's a silly thing to point out, but like traffic flow is an important part of exhibition and installation design. And unfortunately, Jocelyn's are, are what we used to call the new space, the new, new galleries, which aren't new anymore. Um, they were built in 1994, but they, they, don't lend themselves to be able to control the way that people experience art quite so much. I had a little more leverage with 30 Americans because, as I mentioned, we took over two additional gallery spaces and was able to kind of guide traffic a little more. Um, I try to do it with the the texts that I offer, with the audio guide experiences. But, you know, you can't control other humans. You you just can't. Um, I've, I've done some uh, sort of guided, slow-looking um, like workshops. I wish everyone had the patience to sit and look for an hour. And I realize that again, that's a luxury that most people don't have. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have a good answer to your question right now. Cause it's a, it's an ongoing quandary. So I believe that art helps us to live well to live more connected with ourselves and with the world around us. That's my, that's my belief. So I'm, I'm curious how for you, do you see art and the work you do as a curator enabling you as an individual and also the public to live better? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, Engaging with art allows us to be more observant and aware of the small things around us, um, whether or not we appreciate those things um, or we're intended to appreciate them. Um, I think it it makes you a more keen um, partner, parent, friend, colleague. Um, I think about, um, for example, medical students who were required in their first year to take some art looking classes. Because studies have shown that in the experience of learning how to engage art and to and to look closely at art, they are more responsive to patients' needs and maybe the small things that might be overlooked otherwise. 
I think the word, we all rapidly go through our days and our lives without the, the, like the pause to look at the, to observe. Um, we're on our, we see most of our worlds through tiny little screens. Um, I'm as, as guilty of that as any other person in 2022, but giving ourselves permission to be observant and to not miss things, I think is something that, um, I get out of my training and looking at art. And I hope is something that people can walk away, um, can walk away from their art experiences with. I just want to ask you one quick last question. Yeah. Do you, um, are you able to enjoy going to museums? <laughs> I, I mean, you shared some wonderful stories about how you see art now, Rothko's and, and so on and so forth. But, um, you able to go to a museum and actually reflect on what you're seeing? Or do you find yourself looking at traffic flows and lighting and the position of the didactics? All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really do. Uh, I love going to museums. Um, you know, there's the joke of like a postman delivering mail on his day off. Um, I don't have that experience. I got into this field because I love nothing more than that experience of being consumed by art. The thrill, like the adrenaline rush I get from a great exhibition will stay with me four weeks after a show, sometimes months, sometimes years. I mean, I'm talking about this Adrian Piper show that was, I don't even know how long ago at this point. Um, so yes, I do enjoy it, but I also like to watch people in their engagement with art. Um, I'm always compelled by, especially if it's a, a space that I don't know as well, or an artist I don't know as well. Um, what, what do people gravitate toward and why? Um, but yeah, I still, I still definitely enjoy it and feel like I get to do on a work trip, which most what most people do on vacation, which is look at art, maybe have a nice meal and talk to some interesting people, you know? So I'm, I'm pretty darn lucky. My guest today has been Karen Campbell, the Phil Wilson Curator of Contemporary Art at Joslin Art Museum. Karen, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Stuart. Appreciate it. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. In the coming weeks, you will hear conversations with, among others, Jacob Dahlke, a clinical ethicist and the director of the Office of Healthcare Ethics at Nebraska Medicine, Scott Jones, senior minister for First Central Congregational Church in Omaha, and musician Edem Garo, who performs as the musical artist Edem Soul Music. next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.